0: Father, I thank you that Allie can be here with us this morning. We pray that she would be delivered completely from these seizures. We thank you for the surgery that she was able to have and that she was able to, it seems, recover quickly, but we think about the seizure she had a couple weeks ago and how serious it was. Thank you that she could recover from it, but we would pray that she wouldn't experience any more of them, Lord, and that you would, uh, whatever medicine can do today, or doctors, we are thankful for that and the ways you use it, but we do look primarily to you is the great physician and the things you can do in our bodies that go beyond any modern medicine, Lord. And so we um, come to you praying for that in in Allie's case. I thank you for this time to hear your word and to sit under it and pray that all the truth contained in these verses would be um, used in our lives. I don't think it's coincidental. I definitely didn't think some um, probably month or two ago when I decided to look at these verses that we would be having this sermon the day after 4th of July. Uh, We celebrate our freedoms and liberties. And then this morning in the sermon, we're going to be talking about giving up some of those freedoms and liberties out of deference or love for others. And so show us the application this has for us, Lord, and that you brought us to this account this morning. That's my feeling. It's not coincidental or random or chance. And so you have your reasons for bringing us here. And so we pray that we would benefit in all ways that you want to use this in our lives and in our church, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're on our last sermon on 1 Corinthians 8. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 13, but go ahead and turn to Romans 14, or actually Romans 2. Look at a few verses in Romans before we look at 1 Corinthians 8. The title of this morning's sermon is Sacrificing for Others. Sacrificing for Others. You might already be able to start connecting the dots, especially if you're familiar with these verses to see the interesting irony associated with preaching them the day after 4th of July. So we spent two sermons covering the situation in the Corinthian church, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. Just to briefly remind you, there were two groups, and they were divided, or the church was divided. One group was convinced that they could eat meat sacrificed to idols. Another group was convinced that they shouldn't. We're going to be looking at Romans 2 to review a few verses from last week, because I think we must understand them to understand what's happening in, or in the Corinthian church or understand Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14. So look at Romans 2.12 with me. Look at Romans 2.12 with me. Paul says, All who have sinned without the law will, perish, will also perish without the law. And who are those without the law? Maybe it's really good that we are reviewing this. <laughs> who are those without the law? Who was not given the law? Gentiles all right there we go and Paul says that they're going to perish even though they haven't been given the law he'll explain why in verses 14 to 15 then he goes on in verse 12 all who have sinned under the law or with the law will be judged by the law and who are those under the law or had been given the law the Jews exactly and they're going to be judged because as verse 13 says it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God but the doers of the law who will be justified so the Jews weren't good or righteous because they were given the law The law was actually a revelation of their sinfulness or being given the law simply made them more accountable or guiltier before God, revealed their unrighteousness versus making them righteous because it's not the hearers or even recipients of the law that would be righteous before God. It would be those who could keep the law or obey it perfectly, which none of us can, which is why everyone who is even familiar with the law is unrighteous before God verse 14 when gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires and this means that they obey parts of the law so even people who have never opened a bible are unfamiliar with the 10 commandments still know that it's wrong to lie cheat and steal and why is that why why do they know those things are wrong because of their what their consciences tell them that these things are wrong but even though they have their consciences telling them these things are wrong they still do those things anyway which makes them guilty before God, or as guilty before God as Jews who violate the law. And so Paul says that, in, as verse 14 goes on, he says, "These people, they are a law to themselves, or their consciences acts as a law to them, even though they don't have the, Mos- the law, but it means the Mosaic law that had been given to the Jews." Verse 15, they, or the Gentiles or anyone without the Mosaic law, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts or their consciences reveal this because their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And those are the two things that our conscience does. Our conscience accuses us and says, you shouldn't do this, or your conscience can even accuse you and say, you should do this, right? Have you ever felt burdened to do something? You feel like God's leading you to help or or serve or call or support in some way, To not do it is to go against your conscience. And then our conscience also excuses us, which is to say or approves behavior and says, you can do this. You're considering doing something and your conscience says, excuses it and says, you can do it. Or your conscience accuses you and says, you shouldn't do that. Even people who haven't received the law have their consciences telling them not to do certain things, which they do, and telling them to do certain things, which they don't do, which allows them to be guilty before a perfectly holy or just God. Uh, their conscience, as verse 14 says, acts as a law to them. And the reason I just wanted to briefly review that is to be able to ask you this question that relates greatly to 1 Corinthians 8. Is it bad when people violate or disobey their consciences? Yeah. It oh, there's only like one person. Do we have to go back through Romans 2, 12 to 15 again? Is it bad when people violate or disobey their consciences? It is. So how bad is it when other people lead people to violate or disobey their conscience? That's a very bad thing. And scripturally speaking, that's called stumbling, stumbling others. Kind of think of the idea of tripping someone. You know, you put a stick before someone and they trip over it. That's what's in, in view here. Okay, with that in mind, turn to Romans 14. I'm not sure that I made this perfectly clear, but what I've been doing, I've been trying to look at 1 Corinthians 8 in detail but there are many verses in Romans 14 that help us better understand 1 Corinthians 8. So at times I have introduced or shared those verses from Romans 14 that help us better understand 1 Corinthians 8. It'd be too repetitive to go through both passages. If if I preached through 1 Corinthians 8 and then went to Romans 14, you'd think we've heard a bunch of this before. (laughs) So what I'm trying to do is just share some of those verses pretty quickly that support what 1 Corinthians 8 says. But there are a few verses in Romans 14 That give us some understanding that's not present in 1 Corinthians 8. So look with me in Romans 14, verse 14. These are verses we haven't considered yet. Paul says, I know and I'm persuaded that in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He's referring to food. There are definitely things that are clean and unclean, but specifically he means food. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Just going to tell you, I think this is. Particularly interesting. We're very, I'm a very black and white person. I tend to think if something is clean, it's clean for everyone. And if it's unclean for someone, it's unclean for everyone. But Paul says something can be clean for one and unclean for another. It's unclean for the person whose conscience forbids them from consuming it. And so, to be clear, if people are convinced that they should not do something, even if their assessment is wrong or even if they're incorrect in their understanding, For them, it is wrong, and they should not do it, and others should not convince them to do it or talk them into doing it. A quote I like is, A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And the idea is if someone has been convinced to do something against his will or against his conscience, but he isn't really convinced and he's still of the same opinion, then later he's going to feel bad about it because his mind hasn't really been changed, or his conscience really hasn't permitted him. He'll end up sinning or violating it. Look at verse 15. Paul says, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That Greek word for grieved, it means to cause pain or to cause distress. And Let me tell you what this doesn't mean. When when it talks about being grieved by what someone else is eating, it doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that someone thinks someone else shouldn't do something and they look and see them do it and then are grieved they do it. Like for example, if I use an extreme uh, an extreme case, if a man committed adultery or was unfaithful to his wife, you as a Christian, because you love the Lord and you love the things of the Lord and you hate sin, you would be grieved that this man committed adultery. So just your knowledge of what he did causes you grief. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul's talking about people being grieved because they look at someone else do something, and then instead of being grieved by what that person's doing, it's kind of the opposite. They think that they can then do it, They do it, and then they're grieved when their conscience convicts them and tells them that they did something they shouldn't have done. Or then they end up being grieved by what someone else did because of the shame and the guilt that they end up experiencing later. And I want you to notice two things in this verse that relate to 1 Corinthians 8. Paul says we destroy people. Now, let me just ask you, am I the only one that thinks that's particularly strong language? I mean, he talks about destroying someone. I read that, and I kind of think, wow, And we're not not talking about affecting someone or hurting someone. And he's going to use this word repeatedly and he uses the same word in 1 Corinthians 8. Hold on to that. We will talk about what it means, but it's very strong language that we need to understand. And second, notice Paul says, for whom Christ died. Hold on to that too, that Paul's talking about believers here. He's talking about individuals that Christ has died in their place. Look at verse 16. Paul says, do not let what you regard as good, or really that means acceptable, be spoken of as evil. So in other words, there's something that's good to you or it's acceptable to you. Don't let it become a bad thing because you use it in such a way that it leads someone else to sin or causes someone else to violate their conscience. Because even if it is an acceptable thing or is clean for you, but you use it it in such a way that it causes someone else to violate their conscience, then what is good to you has now actually become evil because it has produced sin in someone else's life or because it has stumbled someone else. Verse 17. I'm going to ask you a question about this verse, so try to pay uh, special attention as we read it. Paul says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit. This is an interesting verse that reveals the two categories we have discussed pretty extensively in the previous sermons, which is essentials and non-essentials. Let me say it one more time: this verse presents the two categories, essentials and non-essentials. And I want to ask you, and I want, go ahead, you can say it out loud here when I ask. Look at this verse, and what are the non-essentials? Eating and drinking, Eating and drinking. food and drink are non-essentials. We don't argue about them. We don't quarrel over them. We don't experience division. They're not tests of fellowship or affection for people. They're not hills to die on. You know, we don't put our our flag in in the ground and say, I'm not budging from here over this food or over this drink. But in this verse, what are the essentials? What are the essentials or moral issues? Those are moral issues. Righteousness, peace, joy in the spirit. Those are things to fight for. Those are important things those are things to pursue and those are things to say i will fight for this and interestingly sometimes we fight for peace by sacrificing we fight for peace by laying down our freedoms and liberties we don't fight for peace by contending or arguing we fight for peace by what we what we give up which is the main point of one of the main points of these verses verse 18 paul says whoever thus serves christ is acceptable to god and approved by men. This is interesting. Paul says, if you, uh, well, let me make, let me remind you of one important point, because we're going to keep seeing weak, 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 or weaker, and I want to be able to use the terms weak, or weaker brother, and strong, or stronger brother, and ensure that we all understand what that does and doesn't mean. So, in a previous sermon, I told you that being weak is, or strong, is amoral. It means weak, or strong, in knowledge, or understanding it, it so in other words to be weak is not to be inferior to be strong is not to be superior to be weak is not to be less spiritually mature and to be strong is not to be more spiritually mature these are amoral issues it's not a it's not a condemnation when paul says someone's weak and it's not a commendation when he says someone is strong it's amoral if it was moral then paul would expect the strong people to make weak people strong but he doesn't do that and so Right here when Paul says that if the, if the strong brother is loving toward the weak brother, then that strong brother is going to be approved by God because God is going to look and be pleased with that behavior, with the love, deference, consideration, sacrifice that the strong person is showing for the weak person. But that's not all he says. Look at the end of the verse. He even says that you're going to be approved by men. Why does he say that? Because generally, don't you appreciate people that sacrifice for others? <laughs> That's the point. He says, when you, when you are living in a loving and sacrificial, considerate way toward others, you're not just going to make God happy. You're going to make a bunch of people happy. Haven't you appreciated people in your life that you've seen who have, who have deferred to others or who have lived or acted in a considerate way for others? and so that's what he's saying he said you're not just going to make god happy you're going to make all the people around you happy because they're going to appreciate what you're doing and at the same time don't you disapprove of people that are very selfish and just say i'm going to do this and i don't care what anyone thinks have you ever have you ever looked at someone that said i don't care what anyone else says i'm going to do this and thought wow that is a mature christian yeah i want to be more like that person we don't do that do we when people are like, I'm just going to take a stand for my rights and I don't care what anyone says or what anyone thinks, I don't care how this makes anyone else feel, I'm just going to do it and they need to accept it, nobody looks and thinks that that looks like Christ. Nobody says, wow, that is so Christ-like. I cannot believe how spiritually mature they are. It's a sign of selfishness. We disapprove of that. And I'm mentioning this because I'm expositing, you know, I don't have an agenda or an ax to grind. I'm saying what the verse says. It says, approved by men because it is a blessing to people to see others act in this way. Verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So there are two reasons to act in the sacrificial, unselfish way that Paul is describing here. One reason was just given in this verse because of the importance of unity. Or because of the importance of peace and so paul says be sacrificial give up freedoms and liberties so that you can pursue peace and have unity and then the second reason that paul says this is so that people don't violate their consciences look at verse 20. do not for the sake of food destroy the work of god and there it is again, destroying. When he says destroy the work of God, what is the work of God? He's not talking about church buildings. <laughs> when he says don't destroy the work of God, what's he talking about? He's talking about people who have been saved. He's talking about believers. He's, he's saying we are, we are God's workmanship. I mean, think of Ephesians 2.10. We are the work of God, and Paul's saying don't destroy what God is working on. I mean, Philippians 1.6, he's, you know, he's going to keep working on us. He's going to keep sanctifying us, and Paul says don't mess up that work that god is doing everything is indeed clean but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble so stumbling others can destroy them so the faith or knowledge that you have keep it to yourself i mentioned this verse in a previous sermon keep that knowledge to yourself now i told you two weeks ago actually just briefly look at verse four Verse 4 says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And when, I, and when I read this verse to you, I told you it's better to understand faith as knowledge. It doesn't, it doesn't mean faith in the way that we think of it. When he says weak in faith, he means weak in knowledge or not having the, the knowledge that other people have. And in verse 22, when he says the faith or the knowledge, you're not, in verse 22, the faith that you have, keep to yourself. Would God ever tell us to keep our faith to ourselves? No. You're supposed to sh- preach the gospel or share your faith with others. So when he says this, what does he mean if we know it's not as literal as it, as it looks? It means keep your knowledge to yourself. For what reason? Well, one reason, to have the unity that Paul discussed in the previous verse, but also so you don't cause people to do what? Violate their conscience or sin or do something that, that their conscience forbids them from doing. Look at the rest of the verse. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves or on himself for what he thinks is acceptable. And this is interesting. Okay, follow me on this. Just come up for a moment. I think this can be confusing. I want to make sure we all understand it. We want to keep our knowledge to ourselves versus pushing it on others because we don't want to cause other people to violate their consciences. If we caused someone to violate their conscience, then guess who else's conscience should be violated? Ours. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if you don't cause others to violate their conscience, you can have a clean or clear conscience then. You can approve of yourself. You don't have to condemn yourself. And so Paul is saying, if you were to cause people to violate their conscience, that should violate your conscience too, because you just caused someone to sin. And rare could be the Christian that could cause someone to sin and not feel bad about it. And so, if you look at it through that lens one more time, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself or condemn himself because of what he has approved or because of what he has decided is acceptable. So, if you think something is acceptable or reasonable, you're not going to have to condemn yourself or feel guilty about it if you keep it to yourself. But if you push it on someone else and that person sins, well, then you should condemn yourself. You should say, I should not have done that. That was sinful of me to cause someone to sin. I must repent. Verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, when it says is condemned, it doesn't mean God condemns him, although that is true that God does condemn people for violating their conscience or it is wrong for people to violate their conscience. But when it says that the person is condemned, it means his conscience condemns him. And so whoever has doubts is condemned, or he condemns himself if he eats with these doubts because his doubts later cause him to feel bad about it. Now, up to this point, this, is, this verse introduces a word that we have not seen in a verse yet that you could have been wondering up to this point. It's the word sin. You could wonder, is it really sin when someone violates their conscience or is that just something i've been throwing out here in these last couple weeks well with this verse if you look at the end of it he says it is sin and so so we're not we're not dealing with something minor or insignificant we're not dealing with some with some um, preference or opinion we're dealing with something very serious that it's causing people to sin and paul wants us to be able to appreciate that now with this in mind turn back to first we're at verse 11, but we're going to back up to verse 9 for context. So 1 Corinthians 8, just one book to the left, about 10 chapters, or I mean one book to the right, about 10, 10 chapters to the right. 1 Corinthians 8, we'll start at verse 9. Take care that this right of yours, or this freedom or liberty that you have, does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, notice this, here it is again, the weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. And this brings us to the last part of lesson three. Go ahead and skip over lesson two, we'll come back to it. Lesson three, knowledge is used immorally when it part two destroys others. Lesson three, knowledge is used immorally when it part two, destroys others. And then, do me a fair, in verse 10, look how verse 10 begins with some very important words. It's the words, if anyone sees you, if anyone sees you. And the reason I mention that is because up to this point, we've probably just been thinking about how we could cause people to disobey their conscience verbally by persuading them through our words or through argument and right here Paul says you're not just thinking about what you say to people you need to be thinking about what what you do before people or your example the way your nonverbal actions, you don't even have to say anything to anyone. And you need to be concerned about what your actions communicate to people. And here's the reason that this is so important. Imagine an individual stumbles or or offends someone else and you go to the the person that stumbled someone else and you say, hey, when you did this, it stumbled this person and caused us some problems. And then this person responds and says, well, that's not my fault. I didn't say anything to him. I didn't tell him to do it. I mean, I'm sorry he went and did it, but that's not my fault. Well, Paul would say it is your fault through your actions. So in other words, we can stumble people directly through a persuasive argument or verbally, but we can also stumble people indirectly or non-verbally through the example that we set. And this forces us to consider how our actions affect those who are around us. Now, to say a weak brother is destroyed, which is what Paul said in Romans 14, and he's saying it again here in 1 Corinthians 8, it's very strong language. It kind of jumps out at me and thinks, you know, well, what does that mean to destroy someone? Yeah, because we talk about stumbling. That doesn't sound particularly strong. I mean, it sounds bad. Clearly, you don't want to stumble someone. But then he says, destroy someone. And it's like, wow, I don't want to destroy someone. So what does that mean? Well, we know it doesn't mean, so let's talk about what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean destroying someone physically. So we know it must be speaking spiritually. We also know people can't lose their salvation. And so it doesn't mean causing someone to lose their salvation and go to hell. So that still leaves us with the question, then what does it mean? It means serious detriment to someone's relationship with Christ. To destroy someone means to hurt someone, spiritually speaking, very dramatically or very severely. And hopefully that's something all of us would, would be concerned about doing or not want to do. I'm going to give you two examples Of what this can look like one from our day or one from paul's day and then one from our day so in paul's day let's say there's a gentile imagine this individual he's steeped in idolatry he knows nothing but the idols that his parents or family worship that he's grown up around you know in corinth idols on every corner sort of thing but he hears the gospel he's saved he repents of his idolatry he puts his faith in christ he commits never to return to the temples that God has delivered him from, and only to worship the one true God of the Old Testament, or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, since there's no New Testament in this day. And so he's walking with the Lord for some period of time, and he, then he sees this other believer who, in his estimation, is a very strong believer who has been walking with the Lord for a long time, who's very familiar with what we know as the Old Testament scriptures. So this Gentile is just learning the Torah or the Pentateuch. He's just learning what we know as the Old Testament. But this Jewish believer that this Gentile sees knows the Old Testament inside and out. He is convinced that this person knows the Lord in such a way that he just aspires to be that close to Christ. And then one day, this Gentile looks and he sees this Jewish believer that he respects so highly going into the temple of one of the idols that he used to worship. That Gentile buys some meat from that temple and brings it home and consumes it. And so that Jewish and so the did I say the Gentile goes into the temple? Or I say the Jew. Excuse me. So that strong Jewish believer goes into the temple. The Gentile believer is watching. And the Jewish believer consumes this meat and the Gentile believer who's weak in faith or knowledge sees, sees the Jewish believer do this and then the Gentile thinks, well, I can do that. That must be fine because this individual that I respect so much has been a Christian for so long can do it, so it must be fine for me. And so he goes, so this Gentile believer goes into this temple again where he used to worship. He's, he's then again immersed in all of, the, all of the sounds and all of the experiences that used to custom being there. For him. He's, he's drawn back into it, and he buys this meat, this Gentile believer, and he brings it home. There's no refrigeration in that day. He consumes it very quickly. The short time after he eats the meat, his, his conscience is, is stricken, and he's convicted. He says, I should not have done that. God has delivered me from this. Who am I? I mean, you know, just to get a good deal, just to go and get some meat that's on sale, and feels bad about it, and he experiences all this guilt and shame, and so because of that, Because of the actions of this strong Jewish believer, he has now stumbled this weak Gentile believer. But the Gentile believer is not destroyed yet. Now let's take it a step further. Let's say this Gentile believer consumes the meat, but then the next day he says, you know what, I'm going to go back to the temple and I'm going to get some more meat. It was good. Whatever he uses to justify returning to the temple. And so this Gentile believer returns to the temple But when he's there, he's reminded of everything that he used to love about being there. Maybe he's even reminded of all the people he's been ostracized from because of his faith in Christ. And he says, you know, if I go back to this temple, if I worship this idol again, then I'll be able to reestablish those old relationships that have been lost. I'll be at peace with all all of my Gentile friends and family members who still worship at this temple. They'll be thrilled to see me here i am worshiping the god of abraham isaac and jacob i'm worshiping yahweh or jehovah it's probably not that big of a deal if i just do a little bit of worship here at the temple of this idol too simply for all of these good reasons that that are are going to be added to my life as a result and so this gentile believer he ends up engaging in this idolatry again that god had delivered him from and now he's what now he's destroyed that's what it means to destroy someone he's he's Introduced a sin into his life, this idolatry that poses such a terrible detriment to him, spiritually speaking. Now, let me give you an example from our day. Imagine someone has a weak conscience that forbids them from drinking alcohol. And they've gone maybe their entire life without consuming any alcohol. And then this one day, this weak Christian goes into a restaurant, and he happens to look across the restaurant, and he sees a brother in Christ that he, is, he respects, you know, has known, maybe has even, you know, interacted with at church, or has watched someone teach, watched him teach the Bible, or whatever it is, or seen you know, the way he interacts with others has caused him to think highly of this other believer, this strong believer. And this strong believer is in that restaurant. He's drinking wine or alcohol with his wife. And so this weak weak believer thinks, wow, well, I respect him, and he's drinking alcohol, so it must be okay for me to have alcohol. And then at that moment, that weak believer motions to the waiter and has the waiter bring him over an alcoholic drink. And so he drinks it and let's say this weak believer goes home and he wakes up the next day and he thinks, you know, I've went all these years and I've never had any alcohol and I really regret that I did last night at that restaurant just because I saw him do it. His his conscience smites him and he's convicted, he's experiencing guilt and shame and so now you've got that strong believer who has stumbled this weak believer and I, I just, I understand how this Can happen. You know, you get this strong believer that just wants to go out on a date with his wife. Maybe he thinks he's even going out of town. He's completely oblivious to the reality that there's another believer who's watching his actions. And he tells himself, it's okay for me to go to this restaurant and and have this alcohol because there's nobody here. I'm not pushing it on anyone. I'm enjoying my freedom and liberty by myself. I mean it'd be one thing if I was buying a drink for one of my brothers and at the church. But it's just a little freedom or liberty for me to enjoy with my wife, and it's not going to affect anyone else. And, and he has no idea that there's this other weak believer that's watching him that gets a drink because of his actions. Now, let's take it a little bit further. Let's say that weak believer, he wakes up the next day and he says, you know, I had that drink last night, and frankly, I really enjoyed it. And I know that I have this liberty in Christ. And so he goes out, and now he purchases some alcohol for himself, and he begins drinking it. And now let's say that strong believer, he goes his entire life, he never gets drunk. I don't know what the limit is on what an acceptable amount of alcohol consumption would be, because it's not like like you're drinking, and you're fine, and then you're drunk. I mean, there's like this, it's a gradual process, right? So, but let's just say wherever there's there's the point at which it's sinful or someone has drank too much, this strong believer never drank that much. And he goes his entire life and the strong believer never has a problem, even once. But this weak believer, he has a drink, drink and then it's another 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 drink. And the next thing you know, this weak believer becomes a drunk. Now the strong believer has done what with the weak believer? He has destroyed him so one of the things that's difficult as a pastor or preaching the bible is i'm just going to be transparent with you guys i will do my best i'm sure i fail at times i'm sure that i don't always do this as well as i would like to be loving to warn you to try to help you that is my heart And there will be people and they will come away and they will say, you are condemning me. You are criticizing me. You are judging me from the pulpit. And that's how I feel. I feel condemned. I feel judged. I'm doing my best at this moment to not condemn you. I'm trying to take off my preacher's hat and put on, whether you want to say, my shepherd's hat or my pastor's hat when I share this with you. I see no advantages to consuming alcohol. And I see plenty of disadvantages. I see plenty of dangers. Now, if you want to leave and you want to say, well, Pastor Scott, he was condemning us from the pulpit about alcohol. That's not what I'm doing. I am just sharing with you that in my experience as a pastor, I have personally known many people to struggle with alcohol, and I cannot tell you one single person who has benefited from the consumption of alcohol. We've known it personally in our lives. We've had family members who were drunks. We should use... Let me ask you to do something. Don't say alcoholism. The world wants to take sins and act like they're diseases. Because a disease is something you catch. It's not really your fault. You didn't do anything to get it. People just have the disease of alcoholism. And if it's a disease, well, then they don't really need to feel bad about it. The Bible says nothing of alcoholism. It says much about drunkenness. It doesn't talk about alcoholics, but it talks about drunks. It's the same with abortion. The Bible knows nothing of abortion. It only knows of murder. The Bible knows nothing of people being gay. I, don't, I think that word should be struck from the Christian's vocabulary. Christians should not talk about gay people, unless when they're talking about gay people, I'm being serious, they happen to be talking about people who are very joyful and happy, because that's what it means. If you, want to talk about, if you want to talk about genders that are engaging in relationships with the same genders, you say homosexuality. When you want to talk about men wearing, marrying men or women marrying women, you don't, you're not talking about gay marriage. You're, you're not even talking about marriage because marriage, by definition, biblically, is only one man and one woman. What you're talking about is homosexuality or sodomy. We should use biblical language and not let the world convince us to use unbiblical language. So I know, I know nothing of alcoholics or alcoholism, but I know much because of what the Bible says about drunkenness and drunks. And so here's one of the things that I, I just share this as lovingly as I can. I have had some people argue with me about their supposed freedoms or liberties to drink alcohol. And I say supposed, Because in two instances that I'm familiar with, the people who argued about their freedom or liberty ended up struggling with drunkenness. And so, and I don't even know if those people know that I I know that because they weren't even the ones that told me. It was was other family members that came and, and complained about the people that they loved struggling with drunkenness. And my first thought was I can remember how vehemently this person tried to convince me that they had this freedom or liberty, which they clearly... Did not. And so here's what's interesting. We talk about freedoms and liberties that destroy others. You need to be careful that your freedom or liberty that you think you have doesn't destroy who? You. In that case, their supposed freedom or liberty, maybe it destroyed others, maybe it stumbled others, but these individuals destroyed themselves. At the end of verse 11, notice the words, the brother for whom Christ died. If I had to summarize in one word what's that, what that's about, it's about uh, value. It's about the value of the weak brother. Because what, what could the strong brother think about the weak brother? The strong brother could think, well, he doesn't know as much as me. He's not as strong as me. He's not as mature as me. He's not as, he doesn't recognize all his freedoms and liberties in Christ like I do. So therefore, he's not as valuable as I am. And so Paul says, he is as valuable as you. Christ died for him too, as much as Christ died for you. And so because of that, look at verse 12. When you sin, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So here's the point. If you sin against a weak brother... That person's a brother, which means that person is a part of the body of Christ. That person is an arm of Christ, or a leg of Christ, or a nose of Christ, or an ear of Christ, some part of Christ himself. And so when you sin against that weak brother, you're literally sinning against Christ himself. And the reason Paul mentions this is because you can imagine people listening to this and thinking, well, if I cause someone to stumble, it's not that big of a deal. I'm simply offending that person It's their issue. They need to deal with it. And so Paul says, no, that is not the case at all. You're sinning against Christ. It is a big deal. It it is a huge issue. You do need to repent of it. And I was reflecting on something. Look with me at verse 1. Paul says, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, that this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So at the very beginning of this account, what did Paul appeal to to get people to do what he commands in the following verses? Love. He says, do this out of love, or do this because it's the loving thing to do. Well, up to this point, you could understand Paul saying, do this out of your love for your brothers and sisters. But the moment Paul mentions Christ, which he does in these last couple of verses, it's as though Paul says what? Do it out of your love for Christ himself. Now, that's a very high motivation in my mind. So if you were to look or feel as though I don't want to sacrifice for this brother, I mean, he did this to me or he did that to me, or I I just don't appreciate the way that he acts or there's this sister in christ i don't want to sacrifice for her i don't want to give up or lay down this freedom or liberty for her then what would paul say then don't don't do it for him don't do it for her they don't deserve it but christ does do it out of love for christ think about what christ has given up for you i want you to notice something important verses 7 through 12 we're not going to read all of them but this is the fifth time in those verses that paul mentions the weak brother Paul also mentioned the weak brother in Romans 14. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. One person believes he may eat anything, and the weak person eats only vegetables. So through Romans 14, through 1 Corinthians 8, Paul repeatedly mentions the weak brother. And I'll tell you something very significant that Paul never does. He never tells the strong brother to make the weak brother strong. Did you notice that? Wouldn't you just think that if Paul's going to repeatedly discuss the weak brother, that there's going to be a point that he says, okay, now you strong people out there, you go ahead and you make those weak people strong too. He never does that. So here's the question. If Paul never tells the strong brother to make the weak person strong, then what does Paul tell the strong brother to do? Sacrifice, give up that's not my opinion look at verse 13 therefore if food makes my brother stumble paul being a strong brother says i will never eat meat lest i make my brother stumble and so if you're strong you don't try to make weak people strong you sacrifice for them you give up for them you lay down your freedom or you lay down your liberty for them for peace's sake and this brings us to lesson two knowledge is used morally when at part two sacrifices for others Knowledge is used morally when it part two sacrifices for others. So the, the train of thought, it is so serious of a thing to stumble someone, or worse, destroy someone, that Paul says, if my actions would do that, I will just sacrifice that action. I will just give it up. I will lay down that freedom or lay down that liberty. Now, to be clear, when Paul says he's going to get, he says, I'll never eat meat again. I could be wrong about this. I don't think he became, I'm not making a joke, I don't think he became a vegetarian. I think it just means that he will know, he will not ever again eat the meat that's discussed in this chapter, which is what? Meat sacrificed to idols. I'm I'm assuming he probably meant that he would, would eat meat again. So Paul is encouraging us to gladly sacrifice our rights. I didn't plan it this way to preach this the day after the 4th of July. But it is a particularly interesting sermon to be preaching the day after the 4th of July because this is what I would say. Let me be clear. I'm very thankful to live in the United States of America. I am very thankful for the freedoms and the liberties we have. And as Christians, we can celebrate those freedoms and liberties. But I'll also say this. As Christians, God also expects us to ask what freedoms or liberties we should give up at times for others what freedoms and liberties we should lay down for the sake of peace or for the sake of unity. The Bible expects us to do the opposite of what we would expect to do. We would expect the Bible to convince us. I think, I mean, if you weren't, just to be honest with me, if you were not familiar with 1 Corinthians 8 and you were not familiar with Romans 14, wouldn't you expect these chapters to say, make sure everyone understands all of their freedoms and liberties in Christ. And if they think that they can't do something, You be that wonderful ambassador that goes to them and convinces them of all their freedoms and liberties. That's what I would intuitively expect. I mean, that's actually what I wish it said. But it doesn't say that. It says the opposite. It says we're told to lay down those freedoms and liberties for others. So interestingly, this is really shocking to me. When you meet people who have different convictions than you, you don't try to get them to become like you you become like them. Let me say that one more time. You don't expect people to give up freedoms or liberties or take on freedoms or liberties or do whatever is necessary for them to become more like you. God says through his word, you take the steps necessary to become more like them. So there can be unity. So they can be comfortable. So there can be peace. Because if you start quarreling If you start arguing and persuading, it's going to cause division where there should not be division. Should we have division at times? We should. When we have sin, we have to separate people from our church family or even when we meet people and the theological differences are so strong, there are very legitimate reasons for division. We could meet people and, and we could say, you know what, I understand you feel that way, but this church will not be the best for you because we feel this way. We love you. We'll be glad to see you. We'll give you a hug and talk to you when we run into each other. There's no tension or, or there's no hard feelings, but this is not the, the best church, local church for you. You need to find another one that has greater theological agreement for you. So there are definitely times for division. But here, Paul says, over these non-essentials, don't have division. So in other words, let me just give you a few examples. I don't know of anyone in our church family that's a vegan But if you have a vegan over, you become a vegan. The point is, you become like that person. They don't drink, you don't drink. They don't watch those movies, you don't, at least when they're around, or at least not in public. They don't listen to that music, you don't listen to that music when they're around. They find that activity offensive, you become like them and you don't engage in that activity it's all about interestingly you becoming like them versus you expecting them to become like you that's the the clear teaching or plain teaching of these verses so we determine what we can and can't do not by so let me be clear about this this is very important give me your attention you consider what you can and can't do not by saying what freedom or liberty do i have but by saying, how will this action or behavior affect someone else? That's how you determine the freedoms and liberties you have or don't have by considering their effect on others. And if you think you have a liberty, but it's going to stumble someone else or worse, destroy someone else, you don't have that liberty or freedom, at least when that person or those people are around. Because being a Christian means being part of a family and thinking about how our actions affect others. So we should consider, okay, let me just ask you this. And just to be honest, I'm not trying to be hurtful or cruel when I say this, but when we think about why we won't give up certain liberties or freedoms at times, what does it basically boil down to? Thank you, selfishness. We care more about ourselves than we care about others. We care more about what we want than what other people want. We say, I am going to have it this way. I'm going to have it my way. I don't care what other people think. I insist on this. I don't care how they feel about it. I don't care what it does to them. I'm going to do it because I have the freedom or liberty in Christ to do it. And, that, and this is what's really interesting. Many times when people defend their supposed freedoms or liberties that offend or stumble others, the worst thing, I cringe, I hate it when people do this. I literally hate when people do this. They attach Christ to it. They'll say, I don't mind if someone says, I have the freedom or liberty to do this. But the moment they say, I have the freedom or liberty in Christ to do this, Well, then they're acting like Christ is the cause of their selfishness. The reality is that they were really thinking about Christ. If they really wanted what Christ wanted, they would say this. I know Christ wants me thinking about my brothers and sisters in Christ. So even though I do not have the liberty to do this, or even though, excuse me, I do have the liberty to do this, I will not do it for Christ and for the brothers and sisters for whom he died. I want to conclude by this. It's really only the transforming work of the gospel in our hearts and lives that can cause us to value our brothers and sisters more than our freedoms and liberties. Apart from Christ, this is what it looks like. Other people, freedoms and liberties, freedoms and liberties, way more important. But in Christ, suddenly, others become more important than our freedoms and liberties, the gospel works in our hearts and produces a concern or love for others that makes us willing to lay down these rights that might stumble or might offend. And so, our motivation for all this, our motivation to love others, to give up our freedoms, it should come from thinking about Jesus, and it should come from the example that He set. There's a quite a few verses I could give. I'm just going to give you one verse: John 10:18. Jesus said, "No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down." of my own accord, I have authority to lay it down. That is a lot of freedom to give up, isn't it? That is a tremendous amount. Of, I mean, what greater freedom could someone give up than their own life that they don't have to give up? And Jesus' point is, I am God in the flesh. You, you could bring all the armies of the earth against me and they can't take my life from me. They can't cause me to give up my life. The only way my life is gonna be given up is if i sacrifice it if i'm willing to lay it down and he did jesus said i'll let myself be mocked i will let myself be beaten i will let myself be ridiculed by sinful selfish man i will let people come up and spit in my face which is what happened i will let people come up and rip out parts of my beard which is what happened i will let men lift me up put me on the cross and drive nails through my hands and feet and so when i think about that i'm very challenged to not be petty i'm very challenged to think about the sacrifices or liberties i should make for others because here's what i know and i'll just be candid and i don't want to upset anyone when i say this but whatever you're entertaining giving up whatever i meant i'll use myself whatever i am entertaining giving up honestly it's nothing compared with what christ did It absolutely pales in comparison. There is no right or freedom that you could give up that is going to remotely compare with what Christ has done for us. And so because of that, we should willingly, gladly say, I want peace more than anything else for Christ's sake and be willing to give this up. Father, we thank you so much for what Christ gave up for us and show us in our lives any freedoms or liberties that we should give up definitely some freedoms and liberties we should not give up there are definitely some things that we should hold on to some essentials some moral issues there are hills to die on there are places we take a stand and then there are other places we don't give us the wisdom to be able to recognize the difference between the two and know those times when for peace's sake or for unity's sake you would have us follow christ's example we thank you for what he's done in the powerful way it challenges us.